Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey there. If you caught our show from last week, you heard the first part of a lecture given by marijuana use expert Dr. Latrice Montgomery. Now, Dr. Montgomery is assistant professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. The title of her talk was The Interdisciplinary World of Addiction Science Featuring Marijuana and Tobacco. And she gave it at the 2019 annual conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science. That conference was held at Berea College on November 1st and 2nd of this year. To hear the first part, go to our website, forwardradio.org slash benchtalk to hear our podcast from that episode, December 2nd, 2019. But let's hear more of this talk right now. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight, too, about the world of marijuana research is that although it's growing and there's been several advances over the years, there are significant levels of problems that we have to address and face. And so I'm hoping that there are some others in the room and people around the world that are continuing to work on this problem because it's really important. One, if you think about drugs like alcohol, for example, there are clear standards on what a standard drink is, for example. So if there are researchers at you know, one university doing research and they say, this, is, you know, this person consumed three drinks and we're trying to compare it to those who's another university where they are saying that people have smoked or used um, alcohol had three drinks, you can pretty much agree on what those are. Unfortunately, with marijuana, we don't have that same kind of messaging. So even in some of the research that I do, and I'll say, well, I'm trying to measure the effects of heavy marijuana use and see if that impacts the way that people think or or interact with people. Well, what is heavy marijuana use? And that's something that we haven't quite agreed on because it could be, you know, someone that smokes every day or uses marijuana every single day. It could be someone that smoked 15 days out of the 30 days in the past month. It could be those that just smoked in the past week, et cetera. And so measurement is a really big problem within the marijuana field. And so there's plenty of opportunities, and many of the people that I collaborate with that we kind of meet just to talk about the best way to measure what it is that we're um, putting forth. So that's also an issue. Another big thing that we uh, think about, and one of the ways in which my research is kind of not really taking a turn, but it's kind of advancing a bit in terms of thinking about this idea of medical marijuana. And especially because now we have medical marijuana, there's medical marijuana in Ohio, and it's been legal there since 2016, and they have a program that's been fully operational since the beginning of this year. And so there's been a lot of questions about medical marijuana, and is it effective? What is it? Does it work? Does it work for certain conditions? And um, in case you're not familiar, medical marijuana um, is legal in 33 states, the uh, medical piece of it, and then for recreational, it's legal in 11 states. And with the states in which it's legal, it's legal for certain medical conditions, approved medical conditions. So in Ohio, which actually has one of the most, or one of the states that has many conditions that are listed relative to other states. So there are conditions like cancer, 
glaucoma, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, PTSD, you name it. So again, all of these different conditions, some of which you may be familiar with, have been kind of demonstrated for medical marijuana to work. But of course, the evidence in this area is mixed. There are struggles with doing medical marijuana research for several different reasons. One is that marijuana is still legal at, uh, illegal at the federal level. So that means that it's difficult for people to actually bring marijuana to a campus, for example, and study it. And so if I wanted to do a study on marijuana and a specific type of product, and I actually have a colleague that I'm doing some work with now who is um, in epilepsy, he's the director of our epilepsy center at UC. And he actually did a study where he looked at a medical marijuana product, Epidiolex, which is now one of FDA approved as a result of some of the clinical trial work that he did. And basically it's, it's Epidiolex and it's a product specifically for individuals who suffer from severe forms of epilepsy. So in order for him to get that study up and running, it took him three years. Why? Because you have to go through the Food and Drug Administration, you have to go through the National Institute on Drug Abuse. There's a lot of red tape and a lot of formalities that have to happen in order to make studies like this happen because gaining access to the product is very difficult. Another issue is that the University of Mississippi is the only university that has been approved by the government to be able to provide marijuana for these kind of studies. And as you might imagine, if looking at marijuana, it's very different. Some of the products that are made there might be very different than what individuals might get on the street or even in what we see in dispensaries. So even if we do these great studies, we're not really sure that we can compare those findings to, to real life, to what it is that patients are receiving. So there's a lot that's going on in this marijuana world, lots of opportunities. And because of that, and one of the reasons I'm really excited is that I work with tons of different people. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, but I've had so many great opportunities to work with physicians, public health specialists, nutritionists, all types of people, because there's so many different angles from which this problem, um, there's a huge issue. And just recently, I actually served on the, our UC Health uh, Medical Marijuana Task Force, and very much interested in the research on medical marijuana, because another thing you have to think about is what happens with when medical marijuana is in hospital settings? You know, what, how, what are the implications of that? So we had to make a decision. So my job as a researcher was to inform the task force on what, we, what the current status of research is around medical marijuana. And I also had to research other hospitals around me to see, is anybody else allowing medical marijuana on campus? And we decided as a group to not allow it on campus for several different reasons. One is that there are a lot of rules around storage, and we also have to think about safety. And so if you have it on campus, you know, what happens if, it, if a patient comes in and they're inpatient and they have it on them, then, you know, what happens if it's stolen, for example? Another issue is that we have to also have to know the law. So I'm also working with individuals from law enforcement because with medical marijuana in Ohio especially, the only people that are allowed to access medical marijuana and have it in their possession are the registered caregiver and the patient. So it's not like other items that might be confiscated in a hospital, like other drugs, but it's a drug that's very specific, so it can't just be given to any person, any family member, it has to be the registered caregiver or the patient. So there are just some nuances like that and some rules that you have to be very much aware of. And so these are the kinds of things that I'm studying, and I'm actually writing a grant right now where I'm looking to evaluate these policies that I'm talking about in terms of how does this affect um, health 
of our nation and the health of people in Ohio in particular, is this actually working? And so in doing that, I have to think about the science, but I'm also talking again to people in law enforcement, to all types of people in daily conversations to understand this issue. So there's a lot happening in the world of marijuana, and that just you know, that kind of scratches the surface. Another area that I focus on is tobacco. And just like marijuana, there is a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of um, opportunities for research. But I think we're a little bit further along, just a little bit more further than with marijuana. So for example, if I say that tobacco causes lung cancer, most people can say, okay, I hear you. But if you say marijuana causes lung cancer, then people are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, let's, let's look at these studies and is that really true? And, and you start to get more questions. So, just like marijuana, there are several different ways in which you can consume tobacco. So there are traditional cigarettes, and again, most of the research in this area has been done on traditional cigarettes, so that's another place where I try to advocate for looking at all types of tobacco products, or what I call alternative tobacco products. Because thanks to many of the different things that have happened across our nation, we've actually seen huge reduction in cigarette use, which has been great because there's been a lot of different campaigns and different things that have been put in place and great research that's been done. But unfortunately, there's two things. One, this has not been seen consistently across all groups. So for example, individuals with mental illness, individuals from certain economic backgrounds are still suffering from these high rates of cigarette use. So we still have some work to be done within those areas and with those populations. Another problem is that as the use of cigarettes has decreased, the use of alternative tobacco products has increased. So for example, you see down um, at the bottom where it says like, little cigars, cigarillos, cigars, there's actually been an increase, especially among younger adults, of these products. And so that's potentially, it's very problematic when we think about kind of celebrating the success of cigarettes, but then we still have exposure to nicotine through these other products. And hookah, for example, and as you probably have seen kind of over the past few years, there's been a rise in hookah lounges and um, people can, believing that hookah is much more safer than tobacco, than sick traditional cigarettes was so kind of being promoted as a safer practice and, and not as much exposure to nicotine and other carcinogens. Um, a big thing right now is e-cigarettes and how many people heard of Juul? Part of that, and so they've been in the news here recently, um, and so they're kind of promoting their products as being a safe alternative for cigarettes in the way in which it's consumed. And typically, there's like these battery-operated devices, and the idea was that they deliver kind of flavor and kind of these safer particles of tobacco, that, but not necessarily the nicotine. And this is another place. I don't know if there's any marketing folks or majors or people in here that are, in, that are within that area, but that's another place that I'm, where I've been working with some folks who are in marketing because Juul in particular, I mean, they have the biggest market share, so that's why I continue to talk about them. They in particular, um, it's been very interesting because they market their product as, well, if you're a smoker and you've been smoking for years, here, try this product because it'll help you reduce your cigarette use. And so people, so they're promoting it as if it's for people who have been smoking for years. But if you look at the marketing of the product, the marketing specifically is targeted towards adolescents and younger adults. So if you look on like their social media pages, the messaging that they have, even in the names of their flavors, they're very strategic about how they market these products and who they're marketing it to. So that's another area that's extremely important in the world of addiction is messaging. 
And I didn't mention this in the previous slide, but it's the same with marijuana. Because another thing that I have to think about too is, is with messaging. So on one hand, you have people that are saying marijuana's bad and you know it's not safe and people shouldn't do it. But on the other hand, you have laws and people saying, well, it is safe, you know, if you use it medically. So how do you then talk to adolescents? How do you then talk to people in a treatment setting about this? So these are the kinds of questions that come up often. And um, I've had the great fortune of working with many different people across these arenas to kind of think through some of these issues. Another component of this that makes it even more complex, and this is where a lot of my research focuses on, is this idea of marijuana and tobacco co-use. So we kind of know, and I've kind of covered what goes on with marijuana individually and what goes on with tobacco individually. But what I've seen a lot in practice is that many of the people that I work with have actually used, are actually using both marijuana and tobacco. And so this is extremely problematic. This has actually been happening for a while, but the research in this area is fairly new. So what you'll see here is about 58% of cigarette smokers compared to just 12% of those who have never smoked tobacco have reported using marijuana at least once in their life. Huge. And so and if you look at this bottom figure, 90% of those who have reported using marijuana at least once in their life have reported using tobacco at least once in their life compared to just about 47% of those who have never used marijuana. So again, we're seeing very high rates of co-use, and when you look at those who are actually have disorders as a result, you'll see the, the same kind of trends follow. Um, this is a problem. This is one that I'm really focusing a great deal of my research on. And there was a, a review that's been done, because again, this is a fairly new area of research, not practice, but research. Um, and they did a review of uh, many different studies that have been done in this area. And so what they do is they compare people who report smoking marijuana and tobacco together, and they compare it to people who smoke marijuana alone and those people who smoke tobacco alone. And so what they found is that our co-users are those marijuana and tobacco users compared to marijuana users. This is what they found. Compared to marijuana users, the co-users have an exacerbation of mental health symptoms. So people who are already suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder, depression, etc., there tends to be some sort of exacerbation of those symptoms in those individuals. There's also likely to have a, a greater likelihood of marijuana use disorders, more psychosocial problems related to legal issues, decreased life, life satisfaction, etc., poor marijuana outcomes, additional risk for toxicant exposures, and elevated risk of respiratory distress and reduced lung functioning. But interestingly, when marijuana and tobacco co-users were compared to just tobacco users, these same findings weren't demonstrated. So that's just an important thing to keep in mind that I'll touch on a bit later in the talk. So one of the things that, uh, again, kind of thinking about this is the etiology of why might people use marijuana and tobacco why should we care? How is it different than, say, people using cocaine and opiates or just throughout any kind of drugs? Well, it's been said that the pathways with marijuana and tobacco are very unique, and there are several different mechanisms that contribute to this co-use. So what you'll see here is one is related to genes. So um, I've also um, worked and talked to many geneticists in this area you kind of think about what are the genes that are make people kind of have more of a genetic predisposition towards using both marijuana and tobacco. There's also price and other economic factors. So economists are also involved in this process and thinking this through. And then, of course, the environment. So, you know, peers, family, etc. 
So um, when I talk about some of the genetic factors, there's been some um, twin studies in genetic heritability that has been looked at, and there seems to be an overlap in those individuals who have used marijuana and tobacco together. And particularly genes related to um, disinhibition and impulsivity tends to be higher rates among those individuals um, that makes them more vulnerable to using both marijuana and tobacco. Again, the, er the research in this area is fairly new, but that is kind of a trend towards that uh, notion. There's also um, what's called a gateway hypothesis, and it has been put forth in addiction. You may have kind of just heard it more generally where, you know, if you know someone that's like smoking cigarettes, you might say, well, you better not do that because then you'll, you know, start, you know, you'll go on and do something harder or you go on to, you know, smoke marijuana or use cocaine or do something else. And so that's kind of the idea of a gateway drug is that the use of one drug will increase its use of another drug. The idea uh, with marijuana and tobacco, there's been actually been some interesting trends. Part of my research has actually helped to identify this, and so I'm really excited when I think about impact, because it's an area where um, all the studies and stuff actually matter, <laughs> which is a good feeling. And what we've actually found is that there have been studies that talk about cigarettes and tobacco in particular really moving people more towards marijuana. But actually, there's actually been what's called a reverse gateway hypothesis, in which people are starting to, these days, using marijuana first, and then that becomes a gateway to tobacco and other drugs. And so that's a different way of thinking about this process. And so because of that, it also has implications for prevention, for treatment, because again, it could be that people are having you know, easier access to marijuana, our laws are changing, the perceived risk of harm has decreased over the years. And so marijuana seems to be a safer alternative. And so it's like, why not do marijuana? Let's not necessarily do cigarettes or tobacco. So there's different changes in perceptions and attitudes that has implications for prevention and treatment. There's also economic factors, and so um, one of the things that is talked about in this area is looking at, you know, as the price of tobacco, as it, as it goes up or down, does that change marijuana use and vice versa? And so those are the kinds of questions that are being asked right now. It has certainly, again, also has implications not only for the treatment, but also for marketing and what should people be marketing. And the tobacco industry has been really keen about, you know, making sure that they are in touch with this, because part of our job is in addition to kind of knowing the science, also knowing the industries with which we're up against. So kind of knowing the tobacco industry, what they're thinking, what their thought process is, and also understanding the intersection between the tobacco industry and the marijuana industry. There's a lot of pieces that goes into it. So the science is really fun and exciting and doing studies, but also having to kind of know the real world context is very important, especially in this work. There's also shared environmental factors, and it kind of gets back to what I was talking about before, like with twin studies, where there are people who are kind of looking to see, you know, twins that are reared in the same environment versus different environments, and are they more likely to go on and use marijuana and tobacco, that kind of thing. And then also route of administration. So if you think about how cigarettes and tobacco is usually consumed through smoking. So with marijuana, if someone is starting off with a joint, then it's natural to just pick up a cigarette. It's just kind of a natural part of what people are doing in their behavior. So there's been some studies that kind of looked and see how rod administration impacts that. So again, these are just some theories. There's tons more research that needs to be done. And perhaps you could probably even think of even more ways in which marijuana and tobacco are, may go together, may be linked in ways. But again, this is what makes it so exciting. There's so many unanswered questions. So this is where I get really excited and I'm going to have to like 
calm myself down. I feel myself get excited. This is where my, my, you know, heart is. I do a lot of research in this area on blunts. And so kind of just as an aside, um, if you're thinking about kind of building up, you know, what research area you want to go into and kind of what you want to be your area, I always, I always say to myself, when a person talks about this topic, I want it to, for, I want it to be impossible for them to not say my name when they talk about it or not cite some of my work. And that's really what you want to do in terms of impact. So you want there to be an area of research that you pick that's so powerful that when you have a conversation about it, they have to cite your work, no matter what. And so this is kind of the area that I've kind of selected and chosen because I've seen so many issues with it in practice. But then when I went to the research, it didn't quite match what I was seeing in practice. So that's why I said, I want some more studies in this area. So that's what I created. And that is focusing on blunts. And I mentioned what that was earlier, but just to remind you, it's that brown paper there, and it's a paper that has nicotine in it. It's tobacco wraps. And so people sometimes say, when we go to the store and actually buy little cigars and cigarillos, and they may take the tobacco out and replace it with marijuana, or now the, the, the tobacco industry, again, kind of knowing the industries, has actually created blunt wraps. So you don't even have to go and take the tobacco out. You can just get the wraps already pre-rolled for you and just put the marijuana in, roll it up, and smoke it. Now, you'll see kind of here I have some very popular brands of tobacco products that people use, like Phillies and Swisher Sweets and Black & Mounds. These are oftentimes used, not so much black and mouse, but especially like the Swisher Sweets and the Phillies. These are often used to make blunts in addition to traditional blunt wraps. Now, one might ask, well, why, is this, why does this matter? And why is it any, any different than joints? And why should we care? Well, there is actually, people who smoke joints or blunts are actually exposed to quantifiable levels of nicotine, even if they take all of the tobacco out of the blunt because there's nicotine within the wraps. And so there's been, um, several of my colleagues have done some great work in this area looking at wraps that are commonly used to make blunts and have found higher and high levels of nicotine. So there's some exposure there that people are, are um, having to this product. Another thing is that blunts can actually mask the smell of marijuana. And so that's why it's very popular. Um, and particularly if you're just walking down the street, it might look like you're just smoking a cigar and not necessarily you know, smoking marijuana. It's also been shown to kind of enhance the high that people receive from marijuana. And another piece that's really big, and I've been spending a lot of time with, is similar to kind of what you're hearing now with Juul, is the same with, this, with these products, and that is flavoring. Because the tobacco industry knows that flavors like, you know, cherry, strawberry, grape, they even take like popular, whether it be like uh, cultural names, they try to take that and try to name their products very specific. They even have products called Hennessy, and they even like pulling from the alcohol industry. So they're very strategic about how they're kind of marketing these products, and even in terms of price point. There's even been studies to suggest that they're more likely to be marketed in predominantly African-American and low-income neighborhoods. And there are people who get paid to just know exactly where these stores should be and where they should be located. And so to me, that's a problem that I do a lot of focusing on and thinking about how we can change that mindset. And in fact, um, one of the issues that's happening right now is that the tobacco industry is, is saying that, you know, blunts is kind of separate and it's not really a, a tobacco thing, but yet they're making money off of this. And they actually make it, so if you look at a traditional blunt, it actually can have, have cigars that has perforated lines on it because they know that people that are purchasing their products are more likely to be using it for marijuana and not necessarily cigars.
just tobacco use. And so this is a very, um, there's a lot of research that needs to be done in this area to help us think about what is a blunt, who is using blunts, and how it differs from just traditional, you know, just as a traditional marijuana product. Another thing that I like to do in my research, and I'll talk some about more specifically, is it's important to have experts from different fields. So I've talked about, you know, work with physicians, public health specialists, that's great. But for me, what I strongly believe is that you also have to have real life experts. So not just, you know, people who are going to study it, but people who are actually using and people who are, you know, doing this every day and talking to them about what is it that they're learning, what is it that they're seeing. That's one of the things that I do in some of the qualitative research that I do is actually talking to like marijuana users, tobacco users to get their perspectives on just these very issues that I'm mentioning. And one of the things that I find interesting that actually has implications for treatment and prevention is that many of the marijuana smokers, particularly those who use blunts, don't necessarily see themselves as tobacco users. So even if you think about like designing traditional surveys for research, for example, if you ask them, are they using tobacco, they're going to say no. But if you ask them, are they using, you know, Swisher Sweets or Phillies or something like that, then it's like, oh yeah, I am. And so that kind of has implications for even epidemiology and the monitoring of this issue. So it could be that the rates of actual cigar use and marijuana use could actually even be higher, just depending on how we ask the questions. So that's also something that I do. I'm actually an addiction consultant on several projects where my job is just to do that. It's just to kind of help people think through issues like that in terms of how to ask the questions the importance of adding brands instead of just asking, do you use tobacco, do you use marijuana, etc. So I could go on and on about that, but this is really my area, uh, my focus, and I think they're really exciting and it really needs to be much more research in this area. That was Dr. Latrice Montgomery, Assistant Professor and Licensed Clinical Psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. She was talking about her research on marijuana and tobacco use. Now we'll broadcast the end of her lecture on next week's show. See you then. Thanks to Scott Holmes for his song, Positive and Fun. It's available on freemusicarchive.org. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page, just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. 
That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.